Da 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 Get in! Da 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 Hey friends, you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh. We did it. So many thank yous and thoughts and emotions, but I think I'll save it for the end and intersperse some of it throughout the episode. Play it as I go, like Tony said to Sonia. I don't want to get choked up early and derail the most important thing. And that's examining and paying respect to this work of art with a capital A. Made in America originally aired on June 10th, 2007, just over 14 years ago. The title, a play on Made Men for One Thing, and likely other things seen throughout the finale. In no particular order, this show, Prestige Television, The War on Terror, Tony Soprano, though not his essence as anti-hero in culture, that notion actually goes back 5,000 years to India in the Mahabharata. The Maha what? What else? Journey, diners, onion rings, and of course, members-only jackets. The final installment of The Sopranos was written and directed by David Chase. That's how you say goodbye. The fact that he solely wrote and directed this tells you a couple things. One of which is, the masterstroke of this episode was something he kept close and meditated on for a very long time, at least 21 months when you take into account the hiatus between seasons five and six. Which is all to say it was intentional, specific, and respectful to the 85 hours that preceded it. Before I dive in headfirst, I want to shout out the master of Sopranos blog. It is one of the most thoughtful meditations on this episode, and the commentary and reasoning is just wonderful, no matter whether you believe its assertion or not. We open on Tony. Oh, and by the way, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, we close on Tony. Symmetry is a word I've overworked throughout the podcast, but it was all leading to this. He's asleep. Or is he? Just kidding. But seriously, he's coffin-like and virtually identical to the way he looked at the end of Members Only before that episode faded out. We hear music from a radio, a cover of You Keep Me Hanging On coming through the airwaves of Q104.3. An old friend of the show as Tony's alarm clock of choice. Marco Polo in season five, Coldstones in season six. That morning program was hosted by Jim Kerr. Still going strong, by the way. Currently the longest running morning radio personality in New York City history. The band is Vanilla Fudge. And this is probably their best known song. 
they mostly made their bones doing Beatles covers. Interestingly, they were managed by a Lucchese associate called Phil Basile. And Led Zeppelin opened for them at one point. Hey, even they sold the equivalent of laser printers out the back of their Crown Vicks, too. We hear this song again throughout the episode, three times, I believe. And it was also used in Mad Men, season one, episode seven. Seventh episodes were usually fulcrum episodes in this series. So I saw that as a nice tribute. The lyrics could be read as a bit of fourth wall dialogue. Set me free, why don't you, babe? Get out my life, why don't you, babe? You really don't want me, you just keep me hanging on. You really don't need me, you just keep me hanging on. He wakes. The first camera is overhead. Then it's behind him, slightly off his six o'clock looking toward the door. This episode is all about angles and sides, and it starts right away. We see a fitted sheet found its way onto his bed in the middle of the night, along with a blanket, his gun resting at his side, a beer, a radio alarm clock, and a lamp that looks like it could use some TLC from Silvio. Time has elapsed from where we left him in Blue Comet. He's more settled in now. The music crescendos, and we cut to an exterior shot of the back of a van late at night. Chase playing with the time-space continuum over here. Early morning to late night, just like that. That's the Kubrick influence we'll get into later. The truth of this has only become more apparent through the actual passage of time. Like many of you, I've been in a time loop with this show ever since this episode aired. The van reads Steinhol's Beverage. Looks like they did change up the vehicle situation since last time. Tony saw the permutation after all. It looks to be parked in the line of sight of a runway. Probably Teterboro or Clearport if you're Jay-Z. There's a parking lot right at the edge of one of the runways there. And speaking of Led Zeppelin, one of their most iconic band photos was in front of a plane at Teterboro. I'd love to say this scene is a heat reference. So indulge me, and let's just say that it's a heat reference. Like Melfi said, sometimes it's important to give people the illusion of being in control. More sounds of the 60s. Denise, Denise, we hear on screen. That's the first name of Chase's wife, by the way. Can't help but hear that as a note of thanks. The song is Denise by Randy and the Rainbows. Per Spotify, their most streamed song. And I'd bet the show has a little something to do with that. We also hear some wind. And there's a light flurry of snow. Inside the van, we see the backs of two heads. Again, angles. They're six o'clocks. It's T and Polly. An airplane flies overhead. Kind of looks like a botched landing, but the pilot ultimately sticks it. Always conjures up a memory of 9-11. Every time you see a plane that low. Even when it's landing like it's supposed to. Pavlovian responses. 
another theme this episode. They've been waiting an hour and a half, apparently for someone who was only supposed to take just a half an hour. T tells Polly to enjoy the music, answering a question he once posed to Melfi. This is all there is now. This thing we see has pretty much been reduced to T and Polly. Evidence that T's lucky streak is running short, being stuck in a car with Polly and all. The car pulls up. T looks to his nine o'clock, the beam of light on his face by now all too familiar to us. We watch a car off in the distance from T's point of view, far enough away that we can't make out the driver just yet. Then we're back on T, and then back to his point of view, where after a moment, we see him essentially walking through his point of view to his ultimate destination, Harris's car. The feeling of being in his own point of view is amplified by the fact that he doesn't walk into it for a few beats. This is the beginning of an incorporation of an elegant homage, released in small doses throughout the course of the episode. Chase to Kubrick, Kobe to Jordan, Kurt Cobain to David Bowie. Game recognizing game. It's snowy and windy outside. The gusts of wind are all over this hour, carrying us across the sky, while we go about in pity for ourselves that this is it. Tony walks like a cowboy across his slice of the American expanse, a mom-and-pop motel, a Burger King, and a Chrysler dealership. This time the camera again at his six o'clock. A lot of shots of the back of his head is what I'm saying here. Inside the car, we're on Tony's nine o'clock and it's revealed through voice at first to be Harris. He brings up some intel on a Salafist cell at Newark Airport. Salafists are old school fundamentalists and they're divided into three groups. Purists, who are nonviolent and apolitical, activists, who are also nonviolent but are quite political, and then of interest to Harris here, jihadists, who adhere to violence and terrorism to achieve their political ends. And looking into this, I was interested to read that Salafi jihadism is a Western academic term of art. Not an actual logo on the jersey of the people that subscribe to the underlying doctrines. Anyway, who am I, Fareed Zakaria now? The cell Harris is talking about was boarding somebody on a flight to London. He explains the source was either wrong or done to study their response. That line is both fascinating and terrifying. Harris asks, what's up, my friend? Emphasis on the words, my friend. Apparently, T called for this meeting. Wow. Usually, it's the other way around, or unannounced from their end, under the guise of housing a veal parm, supposedly good for killing foreign microbes. T says AJ's obsessed with this shit. Maybe trying to work in an internship here, too, while he's at it. But sometimes, by the look on Harris's face, you'd think he'd prefer a different line of work. 
Maybe even the one AJ was originally destined to be groomed for. Crime pays. T misuses the mountain out of a molehill idiom as Harris's phone rings. Apparently again, for the thousandth time that day. And then we see what it is, what's on his mind more than anything else. A failing marriage. He's going to be late again. His dinner's cold again. He and his wife can't get through 10 seconds of phone without elevated voices, sighs, and frustration. An overhead plane whisking by serves as an allegorical hang-up. Mr. Empathy over here acknowledges the stresses of his job and says he'll let him get back to his personal life. But not before bringing up the two Arabs and a bank he remembers via Chris, the Mintner First Merchants Bank. First Merchants is a real bank based in Indiana. Harris, suspicious. You just remembered that? One way I read that was, you waited an hour and a half to tell me that? Not quite. T wants to know more about the Brooklyn thing, but he needed an in. Relationships are all about give and take. The New York Times, the Daily News. If you can quote the rules, then you can obey them. Tony's own words. He asks if he possibly has intel on where Phil is. Harris throws two looks, like Jordan did after being dared to shoot a free throw with his eyes closed. One, for the fact that Tony assumed Harris's Brooklyn source was a guy. Tony's rationale? I want to avoid any more of my guys getting hurt. Harris laughs, playing the scenario in his head. A fed co-conspirator to a mafia murder. Nice one, T. We trying to recreate history or something? He says T's overreaching. Something I'm certainly guilty of on this project. But note, Harris doesn't look at him when he says it. Very Western trope right there. Here's another one. And with that, T steps out into the cold, like a lost and wandering man in a Robert Frost poem or a Joan Osborne song. Cut to the same van ripping up the road the next morning along the shore in Long Branch, immediately thinking, we're going to hit all the New Jersey haunts in this Sopranos television swan song? Another day, same old Q 104.3. Vanilla fudge again. Groundhog Day over here. Different partner today, though. T gives a nod and an okay to Dante to finally park in front of a place, a house. T looks up at it carefully, exits the van slowly, another house we've never seen. He approaches a door. The sounds of seagulls are in the air. The camera makes a point to only show the approach to the door until letting Tony in the frame. Again, Tony's point of view. And then Tony going someplace through it. Inside, he finds Carmela and Meadow, who's leaving to meet Patrick in the city. That little detail so early in the episode raises a question about her safety. She was already accosted once in the city. And now that it's wartime, is this wise? Tony and Carmela don't say anything. This is their little soprano family hideaway. Some version of their Whitecaps dream come true. 
a fixer Carmela bought at an auction. Not exactly what she had in mind, as we can tell by her face, but hey, everybody's still alive and together. They hug for a long time, way longer than normal Sopranos beats. Tensional. Carm mentions the odor. Apparently something's been festering for some time now. Heard that as a metaphor for the lingering rat in the wall throughout the whole episode. I like how she tells T by saying she smelled that too, meaning Meadow, keeping one step ahead of him. As he might have otherwise said, I don't smell it, or could just be you. Things we pick up after years of being in a relationship. Carm wonders if it's toxic, a regularness of life reminder of the litany of complaints we rifle through from one moment to the next. Whether or not there's a target on our back. Whether or not we access the Calm or Headspace apps on our phones to devote those famous 20 minutes to acknowledging all the thoughts, all the permutations, then allowing them to cycle past as we return to the breath. I know. Enough of that California bullshit. T says it's not toxic, rather organic, more likely piss on account of the previous owner's age and resultant inability to control their bodily fluids and discharges. Reminding us, of course, of Junior at Wyckoff. She wants out, wants to get home. T says he's working on it. He puts his hand on her face, her three o'clock. First it's a close-up, then it goes wide. Go back and look at that frame, now that you're in forensic mode. It's a painting in its own right. Beautiful, but also suggestive. He's holding an orange in one hand, brandishing the three o'clock side of her face with the other. She mentions Sill. She went to see him. As he begins to peel the orange, that Godfather reference, along with the bell tolling at the end, not good signs for Team Alive. I mean, nothing really is at this point, other than the fact that we don't see him in white shoes at any point this episode. Still's hanging on by a thread, but no further details. She mentions Gab, sad for her, but most of it was, don't make me her, T. Gotta say, love that this is a series finale. Probably the most anticipated series finale ever at the time. And there's nothing whiz-bang or over the top. It's slow, meditative, controlled, regular. AJ and Rhiannon come downstairs. She heads out. He sees her off. They went from friends to more than just in one episode. It bothers Carm. She figures her for a mole or something. But Tony, again, somewhat casual about all of this, doesn't think she'd tell anybody. But it's set up and put out there to think about. Tony's only gripe is that they use the front door instead of the back. Another bothersome Easter egg. Tony paying more attention to the front door and not having those proverbial eyes in the back of his head for what could be looming behind a back door. We'll see this again in a moment 
Dante guarding the front door and almost shooting Walden, who comes in the wrong way. AJ heads to the fridge, the first of many Tony-isms this episode. But note, not before securing both locks on the door. Doing the right thing for the good of the core, the core, the core. T makes a crack. I wouldn't kick her out of bed for fudge and cookies. Clearly feeling her more than Blanca. Carm, too, for that matter. Her lack of response being a form of mutual assent. Is T thinking the same thing he thought about Chris and Aid? She's a knockout, a 10, and you, your average at best? Surely not to his own son, no matter how much he complained about him in therapy. AJ re-emphasizes again, we're just friends. Tony, I know, nice work. Just breaking balls again, of course. We should all be so lucky that our offspring punch above their weight in the romance department. Karm brings up the fact that she's a model, always finding comfort in attaching labels to things as a way to rationalize them, cover herself for when and if she's judged by the outside world. AJ corrects her. She's doing some modeling. The same way Tony likes his OJ with some pulp. She's a junior in high school. That throws Karm. And us, too, a little. Though AJ can't be that much older. He says she's quitting modeling anyways because it's too exploitive. At this point, we have enough material for a book on the many soapboxes of AJ Soprano. T brings up Bobby's funeral. It's Thursday, and everybody's got to be there. Assuming, of course, everybody's around. AJ wonders how, with everybody on DEFCON 4. Like Chris said in season one. Scarface, final scene, bazookas under each arm. But AJ's talking more about the separate houses and being out in the open at a cemetery. Calm, rationalizing this life away again. You could set your watch to it. There was always a large FBI presence. The matter-of-factness of what she said. Like, yep, this is us, kid. He storms off at the incredulousness of it all. Again, Carm's just happy he's not with Blanca. Even if it's an underage model with eating issues. So long as she's white and another man's kid isn't involved. Cut to the Bacala funeral as seen through three black and white surveillance displays. Another wire type shot. Reminder of that intense wind and that we've jumped to Thursday. Note, we also see that Bobby was buried next to Karen. Now, he doesn't get the proper wake and burial treatment, but you know what does? The food afterward. Overhead tracking shot of some lemon chicken, some fish. Everybody's filling their plates and having conversations on top of conversations. Later, another beautiful shot. Carmela seated, Tony standing next to her, admiring a painting of Mount Vesuvius behind them. Again, we're on his six o'clock, the back of his head. They say nothing, and it's just a moment. She's got her back turned, symbolically. Ignorance is bliss. 
Turns out ignorance is also what Cobra Kai wanted to put LaRusso and his dojo in. Body bags. But it's a simple, beautiful, and sad frame. They're together, but she's never felt more alone. It's almost a glimpse of her life after he's gone. And he's a ghost in the room. Patrick Swayze to her, Demi Moore, standing next to her while she eats alone, watching the world go on all around her, watching the world wake up from history. Right here, right now, Jesus Jones. Then over at the quote-unquote kids' table, plus Barb and her husband, Meadows holding court, talking about American Idol, winners and losers. Jennifer Hudson gets name-dropped in the Soprano finale. Whatever happened there? Well, since then, an Oscar, a Golden Globe, and a pair of Emmys. How you doing? She invites Uncle Paulie to join them. He sits down next to a girl we've never seen before, or Paulie for that matter. He does what we so often wish people would do when someone new just sprouts up. Who are you? Of course, it's Tara Zincone, Bobby's niece, played by actor Melanie Minichino. Pats her hand, then unbuttons his trousers to alleviate the bloat. The self-awareness of a six-year-old is enviable at times. Good food, though. Table agrees. Polly says, in the midst of death, we are in life. Or is it the other way around? Meadow corrects him. It's a Gregorian chant that comes from Latin. Media vita in morte sumus. AJ throws a look, likely still struggling with the day-to-day of his own shit. Partially himself, partially hereditary. Going all the way back, we now know, to an ancestor from the boot who went off a cliff. No doubt, on the cusp of that age, though, when you gotta stop blaming your parents for shit. Supposed to, at least. Polly apologizes for being off, says he's lost two dear friends. As we scratch our heads on who the other one was, Jason Parisi says Sill could pull through. Consigliere in a coma. I know, I know. It's really serious. But Polly darts at him. He was talking about Ma. You could take 2007 and give it back to the Indians. That expression comes from a song about the island of Manhattan, implying that it was such a mess, it should be given back. Just then, Patsy signals for his younger son to come over. Not the same way Carmela did to Charmaine in season one, though. He's more irritated here, urgent. Jason P., or Jason Uncle Patsy, heads over. Patsy looks to say something along the lines of, what are you doing? Jason G, or Jason Uncle Carlo, notices. There's a moment there. A wheels in motion kind of moment. But again, I'm not firmly rooted in that camp. Not really firmly rooted in any camp. Patrick Parisi brings up dream girls. Wow. Between American Idol and Dreamgirls, that Parisi-Soprano household 
It's going to be lit. AJ's incensed, attempts to pull everybody's window shades of awareness up. You people are fucked. You're living in a dream. You still sit here talking about the fucking Oscars? Can't help but hear that as a manifestation of Livia. What better place than a funeral from the boy who was most recently poisoned by her? Then he pulls out his quotations book. What rough beast slouches toward Bethlehem to be born? Quoting the bit he remembered from the second coming by Yeats. With the same vim and vigor, one of us quotes a line from The Sopranos. Every chance we get. Pauly with the pitch perfect, huh? Huh? The violin music playing in the background feels like something by Vivaldi. AJ continues, Bush, Al-Qaeda, U.S. invasions, revealing another arguably made-in-America phenomenon, certainly when it comes to politics. Selective hearing. More and more shades of his dad coming through. And by the end of this episode, the metamorphosis is nearly complete. Another suggestive tell, he might finally have to be a man. Just then, Bobby Jr. signals with his hand, pointing twice in AJ's direction, like Don Cheadle at the Golden Globes to Jason Sudeikis. Wrap it up. That, or if this was AJ's battle rap video, Bobby Jr. is acting as his hype man. Gata to AJ's Dave. Jason G. would like to join up, and AJ's with him. Says it's more noble than watching these jack-off fantasies on TV about how we're winning the war. Note, nice follow-up to this with Harris in a bit. But also, oh, shots fired. What's more noble than reveling in the art of the Sopranos while the world around us crumbles? Long beat. Enough time for us to think, we're spending the finale on this? Yes. And that's the point. AJ continues, America. This is still where people come to make it. It's a beautiful idea. An idea, by the way, also made in America. And then what do they get? Bling. And come-ons for shit they don't need and can't afford. A right cross to the face of unbridled consumerism. Also worth pointing out at this moment that I love the contrast between age and youth at the table here. Having Pauly at the table even though he isn't saying much, makes this monologue carry a little more weight. If it isn't apparent by now, this sounds more and more like an AJ style, whatever happened to Gary Cooper, Tony rant. Full-blown Franz Kafka territory now on that metamorphosis front. Bobby's niece is confused. Polly clears it up for her. He's saying the Fram is intersects with the Ramistan approximately at the Paternoster. <laughs> nice reminder that Tony said something similar a while back. And the Gehuxagogan is framed up by the Ramistan back in season four, episode 11. Cut to T and the gang watching a classic Twilight Zone episode 
from 1963 called The Bard. That's poet. Well, sort of watching. It's on anyways. He's sitting at a table at his hideaway with Benny. The use of cuts to TVs on to set up scenes. Nothing really new there. It's been integral to The Sopranos going all the way back to the beginning. A meta-level reminder of what we're doing. They do the same thing. But there is a particular added emphasis on these TV boxes this episode. You see them enough that it's hard to not notice the pattern. The homage to the device that made this thing possible. Half the other guys are nodding in and out of sleep. The TV as ambient noise contingent. The episode that's on is a referendum on the business of network television. The character on the TV is begging to create a TV show. Or at least just the pilot. The line that grabs you is, give me a chance. Clear instance, perhaps, of a state or stage the creator of this show was in, at one point or another. And a larger comment, perhaps, that be careful what you wish for. And ultimately reflecting back on how insignificant it is as he's wrapping it up. The journey to get here is what was important. Everything else just seems trivial. I know. Fucking Siddhartha over here. Tony Black, Bobby's understudy, walks over to T. Hands him a light envelope. Tells him so. Note, though, he took the extra step to put the money in an envelope this time. No Bobby buffer anymore to shield him from the wrath of Tony. Meanwhile, the TV's still going. The television industry today is looking for talent. They're looking for quality. Note the camera is pointed straight at Tony on the word talent. Also, the television industry today, there's the start of a sentence that has forever taken on new meaning since this show. Still hearing on screen, and the writer is a major commodity. More self-deprecation, but that narrative is so broken. The writing is everything. And there, embedded in the regularness of safe house life, is Chase's tacit referendum, or maybe not so tacit, on the state of play in TV. Tony, segueing us to the bright side. You know the situation ain't all bad. Says he hasn't had a green vegetable in over a week. Another thing, by the way, though, that can kill you. Speaking of vegetables, somebody who almost was one, Benny, has a bad case of cabin fever. Wants to at least go down to the pork store. Instead of hanging around here doing nothing, he'd rather be there, inside, outside, whatever, doing nothing. Funny, right? How true that is, especially over the past 15 months. How much we want to get out of the place we're confined to just to sit around in a new place and do the same thing we were doing in the place we were confined in. Only realizing, at least for me, how not bad such confinement was. T shares his Bialy with an orange cat 
calls him Bacha Galoop. That expression means goof or a variant of goof. And old friends of the show, Abbott and Costello, had a character in their bit called Mr. Bacha Galoop. Apparently, he just showed up one day during a storm, serving in part as pest control, taking care of rats. Nice metaphor. Tony happy about it on multiple levels. Curiously, as he talks about getting rid of rats, Patsy comes over with an envelope. Not saying he is one, just contemplating what the edits are giving us, telling us. His envelope is also light. These guys pocketing extra in anticipation of Tony not being around? A lot of customers giving their action to New York, he says. Tony's eyes say it all. Well, put your Willie Loman hat on and do some selling. Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, always be closing. Getting cute with the Arthur Miller and David Mamet two-for-one references now. His expression transports you all the way back to the pilot. Lately, I'm getting the feeling I came in at the end. The best is over. Then Carlo, in the corner, weighs in. Power vacuum. They take advantage. Talking about New York. Could those very words also apply to him? Wait for it. Either way, subtle genius setup. Note the linger on him, followed by the hint of a wince. Rat to Patsy to Carlo. Chase setting us up like Chris Paul running a fast break. Open shots everywhere. Also note, Carlo's donning black and white stripes. Penitentiary style. And what is this, a Dyson commercial now? Who said anything about a power vacuum? Tony's still the skip. Just then, Walden unlocks the front door and comes in. Note, crucially, how the next cut is on Tony's face, looking up. Apparently, Walden didn't get the fucking memo on coming in the back. Guns are drawn, but he survives this mistake. Note my choice of words there. Carlo readies himself to meet Pauly so they can see Syl in the hospital. Asks if T wants to come. T grabs his assault rifle and says, he's got shit he's got to do. Something with Meadow. Marches upstairs. Note the frame of the four guys, Carlo, Dante, Patsy, Tony Black, lined up at an angle. Another shot worthy of Caravaggio. Kind of sad setting, right? All these guys packed in like sardines, keeping one guy safe. The loyalty is teetering on the brink here. First it was the envelopes. Now the perceived lack of respect for one of their fallen comrades, his consigliere. Yet another reason for defectors or turncoats. Tony losing the locker room, as it were. As he goes up, we get one last commentary on the state of TV. Then, as now, some things never change. We hear Rod Serling, the narrator of The Twilight Zone, Mr. Julius Moomer, a would-be writer. A subtle reminder that as high as the body count of this thing of ours is, the body count of would-be writers with scripts that went nowhere 
is infinitely higher. Benny gets in a shot. Yesterday it was his gout. Carlo shakes his head. The two lingers on Carlo. Clearly tells how quickly a character can go from hero, a la Fat Dom, to persona non grata. What are they on his case for anyway? Would they parade around in public if they knowingly had targets on their backs? Look at Phil. Talk about fucking MIA. All due respect, these guys, Benny, Carlo, got no fucking idea what it's like to be number one. Every decision you make affects every facet of every other fucking thing. There's too much to deal with almost. And in the end, you're completely alone with it all. Next on the Soprano Scenes farewell tour, a tour bus plowing through Little Italy. How pitch perfect to illustrate that through the use of a double-decker tour bus. People packed in on the roof in 10-degree weather. Note a couple things here. They pass by Cha-Cha's. That's the restaurant owned by Albi. Also, as the camera pans down and across, there's a man inside looking at us. Now, the profile kind of looks like Chase for a slight beat. It's not him, but the fact that he looks, looks at his three o'clock, caught my eye. Final note, the guide is lamenting like Joni Mitchell, how this slice of ancestry and home has been reduced to a strip of shops and restaurants. Take paradise, put up a parking lot. As the bus passes, we see Butch standing outside, one of said establishments, getting a call. It's Phil. Butch walks and talks, indicating to Ray Ray, who's with him, that Phil wants to do it over the phone instead of meet up. Something they look like they both were expecting. Nothing to report on T. Ray Ray trails off all of a sudden. Looks like he's too cold or something. In any other show or any other story, something to overlook. But this is not any other show. And it happened. And they kept it in for us to notice, to think about. Was Ray Ray up to something? Leaving Butch exposed like that? Not being able to fully pay attention while on the phone? Phil wants progress, like Yim Yang's. But Butch is singing a different song. That 80s one by the church, with the line, Wish I knew what you were looking for. Might have known what you would find. Note, even Butch doesn't know where Phil is. Phil doesn't trust nobody. That's old school. Butch says nobody's taken this lightly. You can sense he's kind of irritated. All their guys, including him, out in the open and exposed. But Phil won't come out of his cave. Can't help but see a similarity there between Saddam Hussein or bin Laden. And the rancor or, quote, dysentery it must have caused in the ranks. Phil, who we finally see, says he should have been done first. 100% accurate. Although, to get to the boss, like if this were Mario Brothers, you do have to go through all the various incarnations of those Koopa Troopa things before you get to the big fish, Bowser, himself. But Butch apparently had a cheat code. 
says hitting Tony first was the plan. They figured he'd be at the strip club too. Wait, the two guys that shot Silvio were tasked with two hits at the same time? Then he tries to de-escalate Phil. This from a guy who was agitating for ice picks through lungs. Since the very beginning. Butch suggests diplomacy in so many words. Phil says it's too late to turn back now. We can't go back. Are you out of your fucking mind? Butch backs off. But Phil, then what'd you say it for? To my mind, demonstrating his weakness. Lack of control. Guys calling plays without a clipboard. And Butch, making his first Game of Thrones move, calls him out on it. I didn't, Phil. You did. This back and forth, given the stakes, is magic. Then Phil calls him kid and says, they're going to sit down when this is over. Another chicken shit moment for Phil. Two in just a short time span, when he's been ironclad all times prior. Our estimation of him as a man just fucking plummeted. He's on his heels like Fred Astaire, trying to secure the loyalty of his top brass, even though he doesn't trust him enough with his whereabouts. Then he pretends he can't hear and clicks before Butch gets a chance to state any demands. We see that Butch has made his way into Chinatown, Jack Nicholson over here, and a nice visual representation of what the tour guide on the bus was talking about. Little Italy is even more little. He immediately turns around and heads back to his part of the boot, or more aptly here, Island. Cut to the Steinholz beverage van parked outside Janice's place. T comes up the back for a visit. Note, he comes in through the back. Janice is unsuspecting. Impossible to unsee once you see it. Looks across the deck to see her laying alone. Again, his point of view, above where he and Johnny Sack talked at the end of All Due Respect, before he got pinched. Then back on him, contemplating leaving maybe. Finally, back on his point of view, and again, Tony walking into it. A shorter distance than we saw with Harris, though. Pattern that is revealed as the episode progresses. He offers her a box of pastries. She says she needs to watch her weight, so she'll pass. The word weight, of course, a reminder of the weight episode the very subject matter of which once lived in this house not long ago. Jan says she needs to snag another husband. Sad, but accurate, because it's Janice. Kudos to her on the self-awareness, though, and sense of humor, for that matter. They both know it's a joke and say as much. They reminisce on Bobby and the lake house. She thanks him for being there. Then, ugh. The question I've found myself asking for years. So, what happens now? In this instance, though, Bobby's son said he wants to go live with an aunt. But Sophia's SOL. She's holding her prisoner so Nika won't be alone. Coded in there somewhere is so she has help with Nika, too. A babysitter, at least, for those card games. Though, cynically, are widows welcome? 
Tony wonders if that one's a joke too because even that one got by him. The way the writing often comes back to what was just said. So natural, so authentic, the flow. Again, it's not TV writing. The same way LeBron handling a basketball isn't dribbling. In both cases, we're talking about rarefied air. T gets up and looks around. When Johnny Sack bought this house, it was all cornfields, he says. Now, of course, they're surrounded by a fleet of box mansions. Again, another creature that's made in America. She says she's going to try to give it a shot with Bobby's kids because he would want it. Poor kids, though, right? First they lose their ma, then their dad, and their consolation prize? Janice. She says she's been to therapy. She's a good mother. Hey, nothing wrong with self-talk. Says ma and all her warped shit is behind her now. Sadly untrue. That shit is never behind us. If you know, you know. T tries to be positive. She did just lose her husband after all. Offers a, that's good. But also feeling a little like, that shit's still with me. And I had therapy longer than you. T wonders if maybe it's a chance to start something new. All these kids. Maybe even bring Harpo down. Knowing full well, he's testing the limits of her self-deprecation. Sacre bleu, where is me mama? Whatever happened there? She says Harpo changed his name. It's Hal now. That's old news, right? Season two? Toodle fucking ooh? Or is that just more of me being stuck in a time loop? He leaves, partially disgusted that she just said her ma shit is gone, but can't find it in her heart to make amends with her own son. Says he's minutes away if she needs anything. And we think that's our goodbye to Janice. Feels like it. But she reappears in a moment to make an attempt at collecting from Junior. T gets a call as he walks back to the van. It's Harris. Wow. This always shocked me. The break with protocol. The loyalty and friendship he displays. But also the balls. Couldn't he get caught doing this? Calling on his cell to Tony's cell when a landline is right next to him? Some degree of separation, perhaps? We know that most of the FBI resources have been diverted to counterterrorism. But this feels like he almost wants to get caught. He cuts to the chase. Multiple calls trace back to a payphone in Oyster Bay, Long Island. Billy Joel country. Also made in America. Note, as Tony listens, his head is framed next to the word ice on the van behind him. Head on ice at Cazarelli's, if your mind goes there. Tony takes a second to process, genuinely grateful almost, then asks where exactly. Harris says a gas station. Phil probably can't get his hands on a clean cell phone since lambing it. Apparently, he can't get enough heart meds either, as we'll see. Just then, a woman comes out of the bathroom, half naked. The decor of the place looks to be a middle-tier transit hotel. She dresses and leaves angrily. We see he's having an affair with a co-worker or colleague. She's irritated, and it's probably not because of the sex. 
but because could she know who he was talking to and helping? Would Harris be that sloppy? Also, is she the source Harris was talking about? The one working the informant in BK. Next, wasting no time at all, we're at a gas station in Oyster Bay. Golf truck positioned right next to an American flag. Nice geopolitical juxtaposition. Across the way, we see Benny and Walden casing the place. Benny, man, on the job, out of the house at last, wants that fucking revenge. He's got his eye, especially the one Phil caved in, on every payphone in range. Cut to AJ and Rhiannon, listening to Bob Dylan in his car in the woods near a dam way outside Newark, a place called Milburn. She's just introduced Dylan to AJ. They're feeling it. The song is, It's All Right, Ma, I'm Only Bleeding, off his 1965 Bringing It All Back Home album. Described as a grim masterpiece, a label that's certainly applicable to Made in America as well. Breaking Down This Song is a podcast unto itself, but one lyric that enmeshes with the spirit of the show, this episode in particular, It blows the minds most bitterly. For them that think death's honesty won't fall upon them naturally. Life sometimes must get lonely. Blows the minds. Fall upon. Lonely. She says it's amazing it was written so long ago. But age has got nothing to do with it. Hesh. A hit is a hit. She puts down a cigarette and they kiss. The only thing left to do when you're alone in the car, in the woods, listening to Bob Dylan with a girl so beautiful, she's above modeling. But not before AJ chickens out the first time. You wonder if his dad's in his head a little. A little Tony reverse psychology. Getting his son to go for it. AJ acknowledges this could be a mistake, certainly meant to be more abstract than what literally happens seconds later. And after all these years, a new song seeps into my head every time I arrive at this moment in the show, for no particular reason. Tame Impala's new person, same old problems. He reclines his seat and ups his tally of most beautiful girls in the show hooking up with him. Perfectly timed to the lyric, I've got nothing more to live up to. Then, a fire starts. Smoke through the air vents, the engine. Couldn't have been her cigarette. Had to be something else. Certainly an autopsy to follow. They escape. The leaves around the car go up in flames. And Bob Dylan's voice on the CD breaks away to the heat of the fire. Great effect burning off a song sink like that. Never seen that done before. Also, kind of foreshadowy. Another song's cut short this episode. But profoundly, the show wasn't. The two of them marvel at the sight. By the way, we get a glimpse of AJ's face when he experiences sudden shock. Cut to Tony ripping AJ a new one in Carmela's fixer. Meadow and Karma there too. 
the autopsy revealed that an overheated catalytic converter sparked the dry vegetation. And apparently he knew this beforehand too. Was told as much by T. Again, it's different when you're a dad. I literally remind my kid to grab his shin guards before soccer 13 times. I even say it five times in a row, right in the beginning, hoping it bakes in on the front end. My success rate, you ask? Frankly, I'm depressed and ashamed. Also, RE catalytic converters. I didn't know that until the show. Did you? Apparently, faulty cats are common. That's me dropping mechanic speak, as if it were second nature. When they get too hot, they can ignite stuff around it. T's pissed. Meadow tries to defend AJ. He blasts her too. She murmurs Mr. Fatmouth and storms off. Always feel that's her channeling her Uncle Tony B. Mm, boy, are you fat. AJ says he's depressed. Things like piles of leaves weren't on his radar. Accurate. For anybody who's ever been depressed. Someone like Tony. He's supposed to understand the human condition, remember? But instead says, you want depressed? 30 grand for that car. Then AJ, isn't that what you have insurance for? Such a great and true line. The kinds of conversations parents and kids have. The fundamental root of them all never change, no matter the era. Note there's a very subtle cut to Tony looking at the door when it closes behind Meadow, always looking until he's not. Carm says he's not getting another one, but he's fine with it. His rationale? We have to break our dependence on foreign oil. His metamorphosis to Tony this episode takes another step in the form of hypocrisy, as he not only will get another one, but it will be a certifiable gas guzzler on top of being a foreign car. They can't believe their ears, great still of them standing there, looking down at him. It's all about that linger. That's twice with the two of them, Rocky and Adrian. Cut to a phone ringing, a recording. Somebody surveilling. It's T calling somebody that goes by George, who answers Cafe Napoli. Perhaps a nice nod to the Pauly David Chase moment in Commendatore. Also, of course, a fixture in Little Italy since 1972. George says, Your ears must be ringing. He just left T's friend, the son, crying the blues over the situation. Gotta be little Carmine. Also, whose phone is tapped? George or Tony's? Is Harris somehow involved? Setting him up? A bait and switch? This whole time? T says he needs George to reach out to the little guy, Butch. George says he, Butch, isn't happy with Phil either. But he says the word neither, because that's how they do. I point that out not because I'm getting cute with grammar, but because the guy sounds awfully like Corrado. T says he knows. 
all the fucking permutations. And the way the show elegantly placed that breadcrumb down for us, that night at the border of Chinatown in Little Italy, we know too. T intimates that only George can broker this. You're not part of that family. You're basically retired, and everybody trusts you. And with that, we have a limited series on the origin story of George. Then, a super ingenious L-cut sequence adhering to the perpetual motion of the episode over Tony's voice. The visual of the super-secret neutral location Tony's requesting to guarantee everybody's safety. But what's really a neutral location? What are the elements of one? How do you guarantee safety? Who can you really trust? When one of the New York families says, make it happen. George, evidently, has all the answers. Some muscle in a trench coat opens a garage door to a warehouse that Tony drives into. Jean-Claude Van Damme and Lionheart over here. They're out of the van now, back into his daily driver, slouching toward a return to normalcy. T and Polly step out and hand over their guns, are patted down. Certainly one box on the neutral location checklist. Note the driver of the car, likely Dante, appears to stay in it, waiting in the car, like Christopher used to do. We then see the mysterious George, the power broker, in the shadows, wearing a top hat, in the accent of Richie. You look like Robert Evans over here. In this case, you look like George Hamilton over here. Now think about this for a sec. So far, a guy named Harris and a guy named George are the keys to this whole fucking thing. George takes them back to an even colder section of the warehouse. Looks like it could be a soundstage for Cleaver. There they find Butch, Albie, and Little Carmine. Subtle thing. Before T sits down across Butch, he waits until Butch backs up and off a little. You know, so T has more legroom and all. In negotiations like these, it's all about posturing and positioning. He just won before even sitting down. Poland spring waters are lined up. George really pulled out all the stops for this thing. But everybody declines. Besides the fact that it's two fucking degrees, they could be poisoned by the inconceivable guy from The Princess Bride. Note that Tony does look back at it. And we get another shot of the back of his head and his three o'clock. Always looking until he's not. Then a jump cut to moments later, arguing back and forth about who started it. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper? Another jump cut further downstream in the pleadings. T says he's not going to blame Phil. He's playing this thing on many levels, many layers. Again, sometimes it's important to give people the illusion of being in control. Goes back to Johnny Sack. Acknowledges him as a friend first but says he was an insecure guy, created constant tension within his own family that eventually spilled over. At this point, T wants Carmine to pipe up. He's just going to sit there? For once, the guy's tongue-tied. But then, it didn't have to be this way. Wait for it. Nope. That's it. 
Butch agrees. All be two? It's gone too far. Butch says Phil's changed. You got my word. We'll back off. Wait, what? Do you believe him? Again, ice picks. Lungs. We gotta stop meeting like this. Leopards can't change their spots. Could this be a Butch double cross? He never liked Tony from the gate. All of a sudden, he's making deals with him? It's entirely possible he was double-crossed by Butch in the end, who then seized power for himself on both sides of the river. Do business with whatever's left. That whole thing. Getting a little ahead of ourselves, but it occurred to me now, so why not? Killing Tony in front of his family would be poetic justice, given that Phil was killed in front of his. The disrespect. T-sensing, if it was really that easy, he's leaving money on the table. Goes for it. My price is you help me get a location on Phil. A 20 on Phil. Butch looks at Carmine. He can't go there. Can't do that. He's drawing lines now. This thing either has meaning or no meaning. Butch's offer, you do what you gotta do. But wait, again, this easy? Butch with the about face? No more blood? Diplomacy ruled the day? I know this annoyed some people, but it was never about this for me. It's about something bigger. And the choice to dismantle this sideshow in this way reflected that. Evidenced especially by Chase's two jump cuts to move it along. But the potential power play by Butch is interesting to consider, if nothing else. His version of Junior's Some people are so far behind in a race, they actually believe they're leading. Then another jump cut to portray a short passage of time. The third one. Looking back, all signals for the final cut. Jumps to something, jumps to later, then a jump to nothing. T says he needs recompense for Bobby. Butch says he'll come up with a number. Love that line and move by Butch. Keeping options open. Biding time. Also, T wants money for Bobby. Not blood. The fucking god of the bottom line. Though he is getting Phil out of it as partial payment. Just has to do the legwork to track him down on his own. And that's it. T shakes with Butch and Albie and George. Then heads off in one direction with George and Polly. While Butch and Albie go another, with Carmine reluctantly standing in between both groups. A man on an island. A man without a country. His pause was interesting, the stage direction on that. Next, first order of business, moving back into Casa Soprano. T carrying some luggage and a canned ham up the stairs. Another shot of the back of his head. And the ham saw that as a nice reference to Junior talking about Livia once in an exam room. Also, that we haven't seen Junior yet for the last time. Carmela, who was dying to get home, is back to square one. Today's complaint? Piled up mail. Back at Satrials, guys are now free to roam, or at least pretending to be. 
like Eddie Vedder saying in indifference. We're at a table with Benny and Walden, who, come on now, have a clear view of the back of Tony's head on his three o'clock side. More to the point, Polly comes in from behind with barber scissors. Note for a beat, Tony's head is framed next to the box. Not suggesting David Fincher or Seven here, just presenting what the frame gives us. Recall we've seen a dream sequence with Tony and Ralph in a car that was very reminiscent of Seven. It's all there, right? Then another shot of Tony's three o'clock engulfed in smoke says for Polly to send some of those scissors his way. The cat doesn't like Polly much. The feeling's mutual. And it's officially earned character status in this final episode, getting more screen time than a lot of actors. Also Vanilla Fudge to Vanilla Sky. Another life when we are both cats vibes. Is this cat inhabited by a spirit from the show's past? Polly wants the cat out, calls it a snake with fur. Old Italian belief, he says. Can't even put them around babies. They suck the breath right out. That's also a theme in Stephen King's Cat's Eye. Note, in this frame, too, while Polly's railing against the cat, off in the corner, we see the back of Tony's head, with the cat perched on the table, looking right at it. Tony vouches for the cat. He stays. Was that an omen in itself? Polly throws him a horrified look, almost as if he just turned state's evidence, or worse. Tony exits stage left, and we're back in Oyster Bay for a quick stopover, or a part of Jersey that plays the part well. Polly's out hunting today with Tony Black, looking for payphones. Next, we're on Janice pushing Nika en route to go see Uncle June, who's mid visit with Uncle Pat. Planning another exit strategy, you wonder? The nanny's alongside too, even for this, lest Janice need emergency help out in the wild. Junior looks as wasted away as we've ever seen him, now in the state facility he was moved to, a contrast as obvious as apples and bowling balls. Apparently, Nika wasn't allowed in, and we overhear Jan telling a worker there that it doesn't cost anything to be polite. Rich for someone who's managed to live an existence skimming her way through life quite impolitely. To which the universe meets her with, that goes two ways, ma'am. But to her credit, she's come a long way since pre-anger management Janice. That encounter could very easily have gone another way. Also, ask Hugh about being nice, who'd no doubt come back with, no good deed goes unpunished. Junior confuses Janice for Livia. Either way, he's disgusted and toothless. Glasses still broken from getting attacked by his friend Carter at Wyckoff. Carter Chong. Whatever happened there? She tries to correct him, clearly not able to read the room, and he mutters something in Italian. I think it's undecipherable on purpose, but I like to think he said the equivalent of, go shit in your hat. Pat shrugs, pretends he doesn't know, but you figure he kind of knows. And he's not saying nothing. She shows him a picture of Nika. He calls her Janice. 
This is all a big nothing, right? Again, that's the point. But what's most interesting here is that we see Junior in this way. We're seeing how things are unfolding for these people we've spent years with. The rays or shards they reflect while orbiting around Tony. She's there to tell him about Bobby without skipping a beat. Ambassador Hotel, where Bobby Kennedy was shot in the head. More Kennedy references, which have been laid out over the course of the series, but seemingly take on enormous symbolism in this final episode, that final shot. Was T hit from the same angle as JFK? As Lincoln? We'll see another one in just a moment when T visits Silvio in the hospital. You can overhear a commercial about a magic bullet there. One might surmise like the magic bullet that killed Kennedy. And if the theory that Tony dies is true, the parallels don't stop there. Neither heard it when it happened. Code 4 saw it coming. Both were with their wives. And like Kennedy's final moments, Tony's has been analyzed and scrutinized like the Zapruder film. She slips in that she's a widow now. Again, she can't read the room and is met with blank, fuck you on a boutonniere, stares. As we cut to Uncle Pat sitting before Tony at the Bing, dressed down to dressed up. Tony's got his feet up, and again, the camera is trained on the back of his head. Also, the cuts are a repetition of T's point of view to back on T. Been saying symmetries since time immemorial. The payoff for all of it is in the editing throughout this episode. Like Pauly says later, part of an overall pattern. Gotta say, ever since Uncle Pat sold the farm, guy gets around. He's there to tell him about Janice. Says she was inveigling him. Great polysyllabic word for coax. She's after his money, he warns. The widow announcement was a tell. Tony sits in silence. Uncle Pat's final plea. You're not even curious about him? He sips his drink, then he can fucking rot. He kind of is. But that personal visit from Pat won't be forgotten. It meant something. He respects him. Somewhere in there, it moved Tony. At a minimum, fuck if he's going to let Janice make off with Junior's bounty. Next, AJ in therapy. New therapist. Legs, I mean digs, are more in line with Melfi's. Full circle. She talks about his job hunt. He says he can't. No wheels. Then describes the liberation of watching his car burn away. He's not as enthusiastic about the bus as he was with his folks. Whatever enthusiasm that is, if any, can never last long. We're talking about the bus. Literally every person ever that has to ride the bus for an indefinite period wears the same face Feech wore when he was being bussed back to prison. The doc is flummoxed by his fascination with the destruction that befell his car. As we cut to another flummoxed being, Polly walking into the Bing in the wee hours, hoping not to see another Mother Mary. Why does he always come in the front like that, too? 
just him that does that mostly. And aren't we supposed to be coming in through the back of places, especially this episode? He shouts out for Carlo, who's not there, turns on the lights, and looks at the direction of where Lady Madonna was last time. But she's not there. He blasts past the stage into the back. There he calls T. Note, sitting in the boss's chair when he does it. Hand on the table. Trying it on for size. Says he was supposed to meet Carlo there to see Butch on a couple of items, but he's not there. And he's not answering his phone. They're likely worried he's gone. Collateral damage, naturally. Somebody might not have gotten the memo. Or worse, the thing with Butch was a setup. New York skullduggery. Skull what? Who? But also note it sounds eerily familiar. To those times, Big Puss went MIA, too. We've seen this before. Tony calls him back on a prepaid. Why so careful now? We hear Cecilia moments later. Polly's ringtone. He's back outside now. Made himself a drink at the bar. He thinks they were had. That Butch took out another ranking member. Interestingly, note the frame is such that Polly's head is right next to the neon men's room sign. And, you guessed it, on his three o'clock side. T waits for Carmela to leave the room before suggesting, what if he flipped? Meaning he's not important enough to get clipped. Dug that. All the permutations. And only for completion at this point, we're on his three o'clock when he speaks. Paulie completes the thought. His kid, the imbecile, Jason, got picked up yesterday for selling X. Which does, in a way, confirm his imbecility. Who the fuck gets pinched for selling X in college? I was as straight-laced as it came to shit like that in school. But I had a direct line to it in my living suite. And there were practically dispensers for it during the height of my club scene experiences. Circa 2002 to 2006. Anyways, Patsy told him. And maybe that's why Patsy pulled his kid from that table earlier. Got a jump on it, as Patsy is usually wont to do. Protecting his own family, as any dad would. Note that as they're talking, the camera pans to reveal the men's room neon sign again. On the other side of Polly's head this time. Almost as if it's lurking there for us to connect something. Nothing. Or everything. You don't notice the significance of it until after the show is over. After the final frame. But looking back, it's all there. And simply impossible to unsee. Like a Rorschach test. Cut to Carm checking in on Meadow. Where she finds her catching up with Hunter on the bed. Another blast from the past and tie back to the pilot. And obviously the show creator himself bookending his own experience of this masterpiece with family. They haven't seen her since she got kicked out of college for partying and drunk driving. Recall Skeet Ulrich. Whatever happened there. Carm says she didn't want to judge, but then kind of does just that. Asks what she's up to now, expecting more par for the course. But is met with, I'm in my second year of med school. Completed undergrad at Purchase. Got my act together. Carm breaks 
in three places. From the 155th best liberal arts college, not even an outright college, liberal arts college to med school. Whereas my daughter who went to Columbia is going to make a career out of making sure criminals get due process. After throwing up the sacrament, she lets Meadow know the Parisis are en route, then shuts the door. Which is a logical point for me to segue to remind you to continue the journey we started here by subscribing to the newsletter at theregularness.com and subscribing to Shut the Door, Have a Listen, wherever you're listening to this right now. How's that for native fucking advertising? Cut to the first Parisi Soprano family gathering. Patsy's wife is trying to tell a joke, and Patsy keeps correcting her, helping her through it. In those 10 seconds, you know all you need to know about the strength of their marriage. That and the achievement of their son, Patrick, who's just proposed. T asks about the other kid, wonders why he didn't come to partake in the celebrations. His mother is nervous, face immediately changes, says she didn't think he was invited. She tries to continue, but Patsy shuts her down, trying to save face in front of Tony. T, clearly fishing, says he heard the other guy, Jason, Carlos Jason, ran into some trouble. T and Patsy have a moment of acknowledgement. Tony now knows or believes Carlo has flipped, probably to save his own son. And right here, his mind going through all the permutations at like internet speed, you gotta think he believes Patsy would, could, or already has done the same to save his own kid. The point of all this is to suggest that Patsy had a motive to take out Tony at the end. Add it to the list, right? Avenging Philly's death from back in season two. Finishing what he started back in the season three opener. When he drew a gun on an unsuspecting Tony before pissing in his pool. Recall Tony did make a tacit threat to his family once. In the form of, get over it, or else. Carm says Patsy needs a refill. Patsy tries to get it himself. But T plays host to the underling. Awkward silences all around. During a moment of commotion, Patsy's wife sneaks a peek at the brand of china she's holding. Love that detail. Again, says so much. Like perhaps, maybe there's a promotion in the offing for her husband, whether earned or taken by force. He is fresh off running point on the botched fill hit. Just a push of a button, and he could have another contract out. Again. Not saying he did it or that it happened. Just looking at what the show is telling us. By the way, Patsy's wife is Donna. And she's played by actor Donna Pescal of Saturday Night Fever fame. Now on the two lovebirds, Patrick hypes up Meadows' prospects at his firm, starting salaries in the 170s. Still real money, even by today's standards. Meadow jokes it off, says the partner had too much Jevre. That's Jevre Chambertin, a French Bourgogne wine for us Woody Guthrie working folk. 
Well, you can just get on a plane before us working folk. Oh, listen to this. What do you got three over here? Final note here. Meadow is eerily now surrounded by two men who figure to loom large in her next chapter. There's a visual separation from Tony happening. Even though they have one more dinner that we know of, it's in the composition of the frame. Meanwhile, back over at the Bing, the orange cat is purring at Christopher's picture, wagging its tail. The Chris replacement, Walden, is pumping iron. Not unlike we saw Chris do once, too. Same configuration. The parallel only further driving the fungibility notion home. The soundtrack filling the space is CCR's version of I Heard It Through the Grapevine. Paulie comes in with his lunch, notices the cat's peculiarity. Walden describes how he's seen cats do this before, either staring out or staring into a corner. As he describes that, it hits home that a lot of us are like that cat every time we revisit an episode. But fuck all that. Polly's over the voodoo cat. Black magic. Sick shit. Grabs a broom to swat it. Note, by doing so, tacking on one more Italian superstition in the process. As T walks in, though, Polly immediately proceeds to wipe clean the area around his feet. Come to think of it, he changes his mind about as fast as Butch did about Phil's leadership. He lobbies T on the anti-cat platform again, but T has other business. Asks Walden to beat it. He does, but not before Polly, again doing what we wished someone would do at the kids' table, asks, what the fuck kind of name is that for an Italian? That's when we learn he was named after Mr. Bobby Darren. Mac the Knife. Beyond the Sea, Walden Robert Casotto. One of the better fuck yous without saying fuck you, you'll ever hear. <laughs> T's business, the Cifaretto crew. Chinese fire drill, now that Carlo's MIA. A term that's all but certifiably been canceled. But go ahead, you be the person that tells Tony about cancel culture. He tells Pauly to skipper it. All the construction revenue with New York would fall right into his kick. A windfall that's potentially been eluding him for years. He's taken aback, but he's happy not happy. But you can see before he speaks that Pauly's tired. He did say he could use a vacation. Says he wants to mullet a little. All due respect. He doesn't want to die on tea. He's no spring chicken anymore. Tony says he's had it with the dead thing. Note, we're looking at him at his three o'clock from a distance when he says that, the word dead. The biggest masterstroke here, though, again, was the choice to pull the shot wide and show him from a distance. About the same distance as the men's room was to the booth. But what am I, a fucking surveyor now? T ultimately agrees. He's not miffed, but miffled. Says, go ahead, sit with it. Paulie's grateful, rigidly heads off, grabs his sub, goes out the back door. The camera locks on him. Distressed. Again, suggestive. The linger is telling us something. Are we being had too? 
Or is Pauly up to something more sinister here? An etu brute of his own. Since we're here, let's rehash. He flirted with New York in season four. Was always bothered by never getting a call from T when he was in the can. And later this episode, the hesitation. For once, I'm not talking about the basketball move either. Then the line, I live but to serve you, my liege, feels false, artificial. And do I need to remind you about the two of them on the boat in Miami? Maybe he didn't want Tony's promotion because he had something better lined up. Him and Patsy. Next, we're at another service station, Gas Depot. It's dark out. This time, little Paulie's out scouting, pretending to be a cop, asking questions in a neck brace, brandishing Phil's picture. Gotta say, surprised he's walking again, especially this quick. I'll have whatever he's having. I ever get to dine with that guy. He learns from the gas station clerk that most places don't have payphones. Just a few stations do these days. Great piece of intel, right? Next, we see Tony driving, eyes through the rear view. Cringeworthy, intentional. Remember, guy lives his whole life in the rear view, or so he once said. Another tell coming to wreak havoc in these final moments. He sees AJ jogging on the side of the road, smiles, and pulls up. Then, I need to pause here for a moment to gather myself, so bear with me. He starts singing the Rocky theme. That the Rocky theme was sung by Tony in the Sopranos finale tells you everything about why this series is in my bones, in my blood. The pause and then the reprise as AJ hops in. The best. Note, the beginning of this sequence, again, is on the back of his head, on his three o'clock side. AJ breathes heavy for a beat or two, then says he's joining the army. He can't believe it. Did you sign any shit? Not yet. Gotta deal with Rhiannon first. Rhiannon, T wonders, what about your mother? Chase has spoken on the title of this episode and how this moment factored into it. Namely, the comfort afforded to made guys and Americans with any amount of money who mostly don't think or worry about the shit going on abroad. And in this instance, how people with means can keep their kids from going off to places like Iraq and Afghanistan or even Ramistan. But AJ's thought it through. It's probably a good move for his career. He reminds him he doesn't have a career. And that's the point. This could jumpstart that. Specifically, helicopter pilot training. Today, you can't help but hear that as drone pilot. My kid's obsessed with that shit. The plan is to eventually work for Trump or the equivalent. Be their personal pilot. And if it wasn't apparent then, I think it's safe to say now, there is no equivalent. Imagine that, AJ in the White House. From the Sopranos to the West Wing. A distinction at least a couple three actors in particular have. David Proval, Matthew Del Negro, and Tobin Bell come to mind. He makes sure he slows his roll until they talk this through. 
Don't say anything about this to your mother. Got to T telling Carmela. She's in the tub, surprisingly unmoved. Getting nothing from her, cut immediately to T in therapy with AJ's therapist. Nice crossover dribble by Chase there. Says, getting him out of his room was for what? So he can be cannon fodder? Carmela enters. She had to pee. Since Glenn's Falls. See what I did there? Soprano home movies. The doc observes the two of them talk about AJ. Army could be good if there wasn't a war. He just bought $200 worth of Arabic CDs. Pre-Duolingo. Fucking internet. Not long ago, he was vegging in front of a TV. And now he's fucking Rambo? Two Stallone references in the Soprano finale. Those who want respect, give respect. Doc says she can't reveal much about their discussions. Tony points out the paradox, even though we're paying. This from a guy who knows, quote, too much about extortion. She offers a smile, which he considers an open door, to go off on therapy again. Tony's dead horse, right? This whole therapy thing, I gotta tell you, my mother was a borderline personality. So what? Adjusts himself in his chair. Everything always comes back to him. In an unassumingly beautiful way, he's almost starting over again. He checks in to see if she knew anything about his mother. When she says no, open season. Uses this session to coax his ends. Tells her about Livia. Very difficult woman. Carm just looks away. I mean, hey, he's right. He is paying, after all. Get your fucking money's worth. I tried to place her in a retirement community for her own good. She turned on me. Completely. How do we say? Oh, yes. Back to square one. We end on Carmela's look and Tony doing what he despises most in other people. Being a broken record. Next, it's T and Meadow getting sushi. Says he's running out of chances to grab dinner with her. And if, and I only say if because, you know, don't stop believing. If Tony does die at the end, this is their actual last shared time together. The choice of language, chances flying by me, unsettling. He asks for her opinion about AJ and the military. She says the world is a sad, fucked up place. Another ominous thought she might come back to reflect on very soon. Also, if he does die, does she go through with her engagement or does that relationship collapse? Will there be a suitcase involved? And if so, does she rethink law entirely? Maybe get in a car, drive west, and go see about a dentist. Whoa. Okay, Goodwill Hunting. Quit ruminating, find a ramp, and get back on track. T turns away from AJ to focus on her, really pushing for that doctor thing. Not being a lawyer for the disenfranchised. Not his word, though. But she says that what turned her to the law was seeing the way Italians were treated. Gets right to his heart. Smart. 
says if she hadn't seen him be dragged away by the FBI all those times, she'd be a boring suburban doctor. A strong enough case that you can even see Carmela here, accepting this once and for all. More is lost by indecision than by wrong decision. Long beat on Tony's face as he lets that one land. What do you say to her once and bust out? You're all me. Speaking of suburbs, back at a gas station, this time Raceway. Actual location is Mount Pleasant Avenue in Morris Plains. A Ford Explorer pulls up. It's Phil. Finally, right? No doubt we see the Ford logo a couple or three times here. Another ancillary Lincoln reference, who was, of course, killed at Ford Theater. This speaks to the notion of Phil's death, somehow paralleling Tony's later. If, of course, that's what happened. The first tell suggesting that is the cut from Tony at dinner to Phil here. Second tell, same music from earlier in the episode. Vanilla fudge again. Third tell, they're both in front of their wives. Fourth tell, he's first revealed to us on his three o'clock side. He waves bye to his grandkids, both in red, before jumping out. And we again see the back of his head, three o'clock side. He steps out, a couple more wide shots to the back of his head, three o'clock side, setting up some imminent masterstroke. The first of a troika of tension-filled crescendos. Says he has to make a call, tells Patty to meet him at the drugstore, and to tell the pharmacist to call Dr. Iaconis, a blast from the past name. He wants a 60-day supply of Plavix, a kind of heart medication. By the way, it's not an offer. It's his position. Just then, a gun is pulled on his 9 o'clock. One pop. Patty's in hysterics. We see the shooter. It's Walden. Not Benny. Walden was all right till that moment. This should have been Benny's. It was practically as valid a claim as a birthright. He finishes him with one more shot, and note, we hear it. It's not Phil's point of view. In direct juxtaposition to the final scene, and more than likely intentional. It's all there. We hear ones from third-party points of view, but we don't hear ones from first-person points of view. Now, turns out we're not done. Walden was just one batter in the lineup. Patty's batting cleanup, unbeknownst as it is. She jumps out to see him, but leaves the car in drive. It starts to roll away. She can't get to her grandkids because she locked herself out. A man comes from out of nowhere to help her, but the car keeps rolling. A bunch of young black kids watch on in shock and awe. Immediately takes me to who they're going to pin this on. Unidentified black males. Also another parallel to the final scene, where there's a couple other unidentified black males. Potentially witnesses, co-conspirators, or acting alone. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. The rear tire flattens Phil's face. The choice to have the shot on the babies when we hear the crunch. 
comedy amidst the chaos. Again, we are laughing as somebody is dying. What's wrong with us? One of the black kids throws up his coke. The timely, oh shit, from another elder onlooker. Something about that old white guy makes the whole scene as short and sweet as it was. As made in America a guy you can get with Barnes and Noble as his backdrop. And Barnes and Noble? Whatever happened there? We cut from the Shah of Iran and that old white guy to an OG full regalia Al-Qaeda operative recruiting young blood. Agent Harris is watching him intently on a screen. Goddard comes in, dunking a teabag in water, asks if Harris saw the Metro News. Tells him Phil Leotardo got popped. Damn, you're going to win this thing. A direct reference to something an actual FBI man, a guy called DeVecchio, said after hearing Lorenzo Lampassi, a Colombo soldier, had been killed. What's more, DeVecchio, like Harris, helped his mafia counterparts with intel. And then later cover-ups, too, eventually getting caught and put away for it. Next, cut to AJ coming down the stairs in a robe. Chain around his neck. The evolution. Looks more like his dad than at any point before. Down to his gait. Sits down across his parents to have the army talk. They lay out their case. He starts saying shit they don't understand, but sounds like he's thought it through. T asks what the fashion model thinks. He admits she doesn't think he should go either. Carmela brings up the club thing again and something about his friends in film school. T pulls out a screenplay he got from Danny Baldwin, an indication it's probably done the fucking rounds if it's in the hands of Danny Baldwin. In any case, it's called Antivirus. The title is promising. The subject matter is always relevant and rewatchable, especially during a global pandemic. T says Danny was shopping it, but he never read it. But you did now, Carm says, trying to sync up their bullshit story so they can achieve their goal of keeping AJ stateside. T says yes in a way that says no. Bottom line, it's about a private eye detective that gets sucked into the internet. To his uh, data port. Carm says she read it, and it's scary. Hey, scary always sells. Maybe they can get it in front of Blumhouse. T says little Carmine is interested in developing it through his company. AJ reminds them that he does porn. The cut to Carm. Saying everything that needs to be said through cuts alone. T saves it by saying he did Cleaver too. He's branching out. Even Sam Esmail, the brilliant mind behind Mr. Robot, started out answering Craigslist ads to edit porn. And Stallone, while penning scripts that nobody read for years, he did softcore stuff to hold him over. Everybody's got their own version of selling laser printers out the back of their Crown Vicks, is what I'm trying to say. Carmela says he would work for Carmine's producer, Inga. He would be a development executive on this project. 
the mind immediately goes to D-Girl. Carmela's pause to find the words highlights the inflated ridiculousness and self-importance of the title. To their delight, E.G. loves the sound of it, but asks what this has to do with clubs. Tony says real-world experience in entertainment, as opposed to that blockbuster shit. Go get some of that, then we can talk about setting you up with a club. Turns out A.G. had a plan. Tony and Carm saw his plan and raised him a better one. One more made in America. Run out past Rahoney, see what she says. Before leaving this moment, I think it's important to point out that significant screen time was devoted to it. One of the longer scenes in an episode filled with mostly short and swift ones. A simple kitchen table conversation between parent and child that happened in houses all across America and many parts of the world. To me, Chase is signifying that this is what it's all about. More than what happened or didn't happen at the end. This moment is one of the realest moments of the series. No matter your vocation, your beliefs, your worldviews, when it's all said and done, we're mothers and fathers just trying to do right by our kids. And hoping they don't blame us for shit in therapy later. Cut to T and Mink sitting down for lunch at the back of the bing. Mink enjoys the girl dropping off his plate of food a little too much. Then he gets down to it. Somebody's giving grand jury testimony on something. T's convinced it's Carlo. Mink, struggling with the ketchup bottle, says subpoenas are flying. Note the security camera monitors behind Tony's head, metaphorical eyes in the back of his head. Mink notices a naked girl running on one of the screens. Note behind Tony on his three o'clock side. Something AJ and Carm would see were they sitting there. His hunch is that there's an 80 to 90% chance T gets indicted. He's a lot less confident and reassuring than he was on that gun charge found outside Johnny Sachs, in all due respect, and carrying over into members only. Says that gun charge, combined with interstate fraud, and if Carlo talks, homicide, a la Fat Dom, the RICO predicate puzzle would be complete. But all T can think about in that moment is the fucking catch-up. Actually very zen of him, living in the moment and not preoccupied with the past or the speculative future. At least not in this moment. He grabs the ketchup but can't get any out either. Another tacit tell that his lake of luck is finally running dry. Not like we haven't envisioned this day. No, no, it's not. They bite into their ketchupless burgers. Better that way, you ask me. Then a combination of solace and counsel. Look, trials are there to be won. Litigation, burgers, and strippers. Only in America. And ironically, Mink seeing what Tony can't see. Literally, through the monitors behind him, and professionally, how a jury of his peers might decide his case. Cut to a hospital, Sill, 
bad shape, but breathing. Gabby's with him, giving him a pedicure, likely to help with circulation. T walks in. On the radio, we hear something about cheese before the magic bullet blender reference. The cheese part, of course, reminds us of Silvio's altercation with the Bevilacqua brothers at the executive game. Yes, I know they're not brothers. When Gabby leaves, T just sits there and looks at him for a while before noticing Little Miss Sunshine on the TV. The screaming part, another potential hint of what's to come with respect to Meadow. That movie came out in 2006 and did $101 million against an $8 million budget. My favorite kind of stories. Nominated for four Oscars, nabbing two. T reaches for Sill's hand, and that's it. Two old friends, possibly at the end of their era. Next, an exterior shot of Satrials, one last time. The choice to frame it from afar, across the street. The color, the detail, the respect. Tony and Polly. Polly, of course, catching rays. T asks, so? Polly folds up his reflector thingamajig, a physical preamble before the actual verbal one. Then, all due respect, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart, I'm going to pass. The reason? Every guy who ran that crew died prematurely. He cites Data, Richie, Ralphie, MIA, of course he doesn't know the truth, Vito, now Carlo, Gigi. Though, he reminds him that Gigi died taking his shit. Remember, Spackle? T's undeterred, recruiting hard. You gonna deny yourself life-changing money? Polly brings up the cat again, a chance for us to appreciate and reflect on all Polly's general idiosyncrasies. T thinks it was a dead rat behind the wall that he was staring at, not Chris. But Polly says he moved the picture, and the cat followed it. T changes, even acknowledges some kind of supernatural charge to Chris's death. Says his gambling luck has taken a turn, a 180 from the bad streak he'd been on. The biggest blunder of his professional career has turned into a cash cow. Polly observes and reports on the contradiction. You can believe in Lady Luck, but I can't believe in a jinx. Long beat. Then Polly tells T about the Virgin Mary at the Bing. Again, can't overstate the nexus between her and a strip club here. Does it with another preamble, too. Tony allowing them more, lately. Then he makes jokes, through the veil of empathy. Why didn't you say something? Fuck strippers, we could have had a shrine. Sold holy water in gallon jugs. Could have made billions. Bought a Bible. T's bottom line, you don't want the job, you don't want the job. He says you'll put Patsy in there, his second choice. You wonder if that gets back to Patsy, further irking him. T says he's going to be part of the family now. It'll be good. 100% calculated. The look Polly throws him, great setup by T to get Polly worked up. And have decision remorse, if there's such a thing, like buyer's remorse. Polly can't stomach that. T always knows what to say. All the permutations. 
says he'll take the job. I live but to serve you, my liege. Or Lord. As Tony gets up and leaves, we see the back of his head again, followed by more wind gusts as Polly sits there alone, regretting, not regretting, his decision. He goes back to his raise, him and four empty chairs now. A reminder of how decimated their crew is. Compare this back to the season one frames, or even the season three Christopher episode frame, how filled out it was, versus now. The last man standing. Who would have ever thought? And notice how little he gives a fuck. Talk about somebody living in the moment. Just never thought it'd be Pauly. And maybe that's why it is. He's alone, of course, except for that cat who makes his way over with a little help from a tailwind from the breeze. From the ambient sounds of that stretch of Jersey Road for the last time, we're on an exterior shot of Lone Wolves Productions. The insignia, a stripper riding a wolf. AJ comes out on the phone, blows through the door, the same way Tony has blown through the one at the back of the Bing so many times before. The metamorphosis all but complete. Just one last thing. Something he says at Holston's. Scripts tucked under his arm, in full development exec mode, drum roll, with a new BMW to boot. An M3, a car he once talked to Tony about when he was in the coma. Likely not a coincidence, the alphanumeric characters on his license plate symbolize explosives often used in war. This from a kid who has been entrenched in war rabbit holes. Figures if he can't be in one, maybe he can make movies about them. The song as he drives off is Scratch Your Name by the Noisettes. In the car, he's citing the fuel economy bona fides to Rhiannon, who's on the phone. He heads over to her school and picks her up out front. Beautifully and profoundly on the lyric, scratch your name into the fabric of this world before you go. The next line we don't hear in full is, the skin will tear under the pressure. Make it deep so it always shows. What a thing, huh? The Sopranos is not only scratched into the fabric of this world, it's now rooted in this world. A short time later, Carm finds the two of them enjoying laughs on the couch. The happiness is interesting. Don't see it often. So it's noticeable. The journey from where he's been to where he is. This, as we're all too conditioned to know by this point, can't last. Won't last. Another tell. Things are just going too well. And this isn't the fucking Brady Bunch finale. Carm lets him know in passing that they're not eating at home tonight. Thought we'd go to Holston's, she says. He was expecting manicotte at home. But compromise, AJ. Eat a grilled cheese off a Holston's frying pan instead. She says she's got meetings with carpenters. Takes you back to a past scene. No, not Vic Musto. He was a painter. Rather, if I were a carpenter and you were a douchebag. Season 4, episode 2. Right there, it's revealed they're watching footage of Carl Rove 
Dancing with David Gregory. Remember when Rove referred to himself as M.C. Rove? Again, only in America. And David Gregory, whatever happened there? What's more, they follow this video up with former President Bush dancing with (laughs) who Tony would call the Bushmen of the Kalahari. (laughs) This has been too much fun. The music the video clips are set to is the Lifeboat Party by Kid Creole and the Coconuts. Carm looks over, but then back at renderings of her beach house fixer. Part of me always saw that as a 2001 Space Odyssey-style glimpse into her own future. Next, we're on tea in the backyard, the famous final scene to those in the know, but clearly not in the know, and not knowing so until they watched with everybody else. Starting on his three o'clock, he's raking leaves, breathing air, taking it all in. Carmela comes over, note from behind and toward his three o'clock side. To tell him Holston's is the consensus. But there is no consensus. More fittingly, it's her prerogative. Her specs taking priority over family dinner at home tonight. Makes you imagine what an ending with just the four of them at home might look like. Slow fade to black while they just monge and talk. Another ending I've imagined and that's always lingered, never known why, Tony hiding out inside Satrials. We see him flip the sign from open to closed. Fade to black. More acutely, with respect to Carm here, though, makes you wonder what role, if any, she played in the final seconds. Chase adroitly brings her decisions, her choices, into the mix. Reminding us that she's had outs before. Her and the kids. Crack hour. White caps. Maybe Holston's doesn't even happen if she stuck to her guns on any one of them. He looks at his watch. He's got to go see some people first. Curiously doesn't say who. Why not just tell her he's going to see his uncle? Looking at his watch, by the way, was a reminder for us to do the same. Now less than 10 minutes to go, including credits. He says he'll meet her there. We see his three o'clock followed by his six o'clock, the back of his head. Next, we're back at the state facility Junior's at. We get a glimpse of the patients there, how they differ from those at Wyckoff. We hear Jeopardy on a TV. A contestant asks for quotations for 400. Heard that as a reference to... Why don't you get the fuck out of here before I shove your quotations book up your fat fucking ass? TC's Junior in the corner looking out a caged window. Tony's point of view. We stay with it for a long beat. Then an orderly approaches from behind on his three o'clock side. But T doesn't see or hear him. Again, doesn't see or hear him. He's actually startled when he does. It's all there. Then another time-lapse jump cut from his point of view to walking through his point of view. Even shorter this time. Skipping those in-between steps 
always catches your eye. It's almost like Chase is doing needle drops. Above an inactive fireplace, there's a sign, have a nice day. T leans against the wall where the window is and looks down. Again, back of his head, three o'clock. But also note, he's not wearing white shoes in this scene. And it's implied that he went to Holston's from there. What's always bothered me is that his Holston shirt has a black collar. But here, he has a gray one, suggesting he changed and could very well have changed his shoes too, which we never see again. Junior looks up. How long has it been since the two of them were together? Not since members only, the beginning of six. Junior says hello after a long pause. T, what? You don't recognize me? Lately, I hear that Shin song, The Fear, when he says that. He finally makes a connection. We used to play catch. Something incredibly instructive and beautiful and sad in that statement. Instead of bad things and all the shit that fills a life, when you think of a person in your life, you mostly only remember little, innocent, positive, simple things. Playing catch is what we'll remember. Picking up tennis balls in those metal baskets. Eating Turkey Hill ice cream out of a carton. Shooting streams of whipped cream in between scoops. Pulling over in the middle of nowhere on a road trip to take an artistic photo. Playing Ice Ice Baby and impressing your kid with your performance of it. Generations of a family doing a TikTok dance together. Continued conversations on a chairlift between runs. Watching somebody listen to something you love for the first time. Watching somebody watch something you love for the first time. Everything else truly does, as Carmela said in Paris, wash away. Especially the details of the bad stuff. Speaking of bad stuff, T, you don't remember that you shot me? Junior looks out at those birds again. That's all he's got now. But we see him acknowledge it. Part of him, at least, still remembers. How could you forget? T tries to jog his memory with a little attitude. I'm Anthony, Johnny's son. Fuck you on a boutonniere. That's what a shred of dignity looks like. Tony spins his wheelchair around in frustration, sits down next to him, mentions what Uncle Pat told him about Janice, the money. Junior says he doesn't know. Cites the accountant from another galaxy we heard about. When T instructs, any money should go to Bobby Bacala's kids. Now, Janice may not do that, but Bobby was with us, he explains. Acknowledges he was a made guy, even though we never saw it. Junior's face goes through a range of emotions. Somewhere in there, he nods his assent to what Tony is saying. T asks if he even remembers Bobby. Junior, as lucid as he's been this whole sequence, sure, but then it falls apart. Just like T said in Melfi's office, you have these thoughts, and you almost grab it. And then, 
Tony, you don't know who I am, do you? Long beats, empty silence. You can feel the cold in the room. Then Tony's irritation and anger turns to empathy. You remember Johnny? Johnny boy? Your kid brother? This thing of ours. I was involved with that? You and my dad. You two ran North Jersey. We did? Yeah. Hmm. Well, that's nice. The summation of that last statement is incalculable. That's nice. Fuck we want, a boutonniere? We get one last great solo frame of Junior, looking out and away. Tony's eyes well, just a little, and he walks off. Love the way the camera moves with him. Coming at us, but never quite getting there. And then, the sequence that will be evaluated and analyzed and discussed for generations. The Holston scene. Orson Welles once said, the camera is far more than a recording apparatus. It is a means by which messages come to us from the other world. This is the beginning of magic. I think if Wells watched this sequence today, he would say, this is that. David Chase once said, Edgar Allan Poe's dream within a dream was an inspiration for this final sequence. The operative lines that are instructive here, and in parting from you now, thus much let me avow, you are not wrong who deem that my days have been a dream. All that we see or seem is but a dream within a dream. At the risk of being overly corny about it, but I feel like this is a safe place to do so, I think that Chase is talking to us. A, you are not wrong, whatever you think, whatever you feel about this. And B, This project has been my dream, and my final offering to you is but another one, a dream within a dream. The first frame is Tony coming in. The interior is bouquet almost. Menus, gummy bears in a jar, white lantern lights overhead, ribbons and bows on gift boxes. All of it looks to be from the vantage point of somebody sitting and staring at the door. Tony's eventual point of view. As he enters, the door chime jingles. We're looking straight at him, his eventual point of view, as if he were looking at himself entering the diner. Note behind his head is a street light, but of course it looks like a beacon. He has a look on his face like he sees something, himself maybe, the minute he walks in, almost like he's made. 
and it's too late to turn back now. Note the lyric on the song that's on when he enters. References a dream. It's all that you dream by little feats. Recall, there's another death scene, if we're calling this that, at the beginning of this season, where another song about dreams is playing when Ponte Corvo kills that guy with the initials T.S. He has this unabashed look of recognition when he walks in. Knows he's supposed to be there or something. Like everything was leading to this moment. Goes to something Chase once said. Tony put himself there. Deeper meaning being, we are the captains of our respective ships. We're responsible for where we end up. It's excessively loud, by the way. For anyone who's ever been there, it's not an overly loud place. Next, we get a view of the interior, ostensibly through his eyes. A man walks across the screen. We see his three o'clock. A band of Boy Scouts in the far corner, led by a pack leader that has hair resembling Phil Leotardo. Lots of familiar faces, as we'll see. All bearing witness, you wonder. A guy with a hat on backwards, disrespecting the place. Maybe that's what Tony saw and thought about addressing before letting it go. Next frame, we see him sitting in a booth facing the entry. This transportive element or jump cut again, inspired by the ending of 2001 A Space Odyssey. A man seeing the stage that's been set for the end of his time. To bring Nirvana into the fold, he's on a plane, seeing the whole thing play out, seeing all the permutations at an almost metaphysical level. And importantly, we are in his head the whole way through. We've always been in his head. We've had an open invitation for 86 hours. Important link between Kubrick and Chase. Kubrick never explained his ending either leaving it to the viewer to speculate. Welcoming complicated interpretations. What matters is what it means to you. The backdrop of Bloomfield, New Jersey, flanked by two former men who had the makings of varsity athletes. Tony's in between them both. What he could have been, what might have been, Moments that came, moments that passed. Also, the school looks astonishingly similar to the inn at the Oaks. Note his framing. His head is in plain sight, in between the heads of two women, one facing him and one opposite him. It's what you see prominently when you walk in the door. It's what Meadow would see. If we go by Chase's dictum that Tony was where he wanted to be, where he was supposed to be, you gotta wonder why he'd be right smack in the middle of that place, as opposed to off in a corner somewhere with nothing but a wall behind him. Maybe he wasn't as paranoid as he let on. Maybe now that Phil's gone, 
he let his guard down for a night and took whatever table was given and figured if he made eye contact with everybody that came through the door, he'd be able to react if necessary. That it'd be enough. He's waiting around, tapping his hands, just another regular Joe in a diner. Next frame is a close-up on him looking at the jukebox. Camera at an angle, but pointed at his three o'clock. Note we see a bit of his reflection in the shine of the jukebox, suggesting he might be able to see what's in it, too, coming from his three o'clock. Obscured, but apparent, especially if nobody's sitting next to him. Always makes you wonder. If Meadow hadn't opened the door, would Tony's face still be on the jukebox? And would he see the reflection of somebody approaching him with a gun? The same way he did in Isabella. He starts rifling through the choices on the now largely obsolete machine. The term jukebox was coined sometime in the 40s and is a derivation of the term juke joint, a makeshift venue for music and dancing. To juke is to dance. But it's also the essence of a perfectly executed backdoor cut in basketball. We see a bunch of suggestive songs. Those were the days. Takes you right back to the pilot. Whatever happened to Gary Cooper. The ominous turn, turn, turn. Three warnings. Only the strong survive. T survived two attempts on his life. Would a third complete what the other two couldn't? Victim of love. Now, this is a weird one for me. I've always had a theory that Members Only was a guy from Tony's past. From Tony and Carmela's past. Maybe they were all even inside Holston's once, when they were young. Maybe this is history repeating itself. Maybe we'll see a version of it again in the movie. And maybe Tony did something to him years ago. Maybe he loved Carmela once too. I don't know. But the song name, Victim of Love, always spoke to me in this way. Part of the rationale comes from the fact that he entered after Carmela. So she never saw him. And then when he walks past them, Tony briefly acknowledges him. But he kind of goes out of his way to stay as far to the left of the aisle, away from Tony's booth, as he can. To avoid being noticed by either him or her. Other songs we see, I've Gotta Be Me, Tony Bennett. You know what you signed up for, Carm. A Lonely Place. All due respect, you got no idea what it's like to be number one. This Magic Moment, a song played at the end of Soprano Home Movies. And note the word hit next to it on an orange-colored arrow. Since I don't have you, Meadow's not with him. Crystal Blue Persuasion, song that many people know from Breaking Bad, a show that exists because of this one. 
I'm alive. A sign of hope. Finally, June night. A nod to the original airing of this episode. The next frame is a waiter taking orders. Just another night at Holston's. Until it isn't. Or until it is, we'll never know. Wonderfully timed cut to the kitchen, where a crew of cooks are churning out orders. The edit via pacing and locations is telling us, look everywhere, look at everything. Then the camera close-ups on the jukebox, tracking Tony's eyes at the offerings. He lands on Who Will You Run To and Magic Man by heart. The camera locked long enough for them to be symbolic. Turns out the opening lines of Who Will You Run To convey a clue. You're not sure what you want to do with your life. But you sure don't want me in it. Yeah, you're sure the life you're living with me can't go on one single minute. And there's a new one waiting outside this door. And now's the time to begin it. Had to take a walk after that one. Just then, T hears the door chime and looks up, on alert. This is the beginning of a pattern that happens five times, where the logical conclusion is that what followed the final lookup was also Tony's point of view. The next frame is a lone woman walking in, commencing a cycle of Tony looking up and then cutting to what he sees. Nothing more, nothing less. Anyways, that woman comes in with purpose, as though she were late to meet somebody there. The music is loud, distracting, disconcerting, given how much time is left. All by design. Some of us are standing at this point, as if it were the end of a close game. A win or go home, game seven. I personally have been Adam Sandler at the end of Uncut Gems at times. He's trained back on the jukebox, dials onto a card with Journey on it. Don't stop believing any way you want it. Perhaps more coded messaging for us. This, whatever this is, is any way you want it. So don't stop believing. Of course, we now know this song almost didn't happen. Came down to the wire. Three days, actually where Steve Perry wanted assurances his song wouldn't forever be tied to the end of Tony Soprano, at least not in an inelegant fashion. Turned out his song was, and is now forever, tied to the show. But that hasn't been all that bad for sales, and business, and personal legend. And it turns out it was mutual, as the song was key to everything. The music dictated the cuts, the pace, the direction. We see him again looking at the jukebox, passing over Journey and wandering over to Tony Bennett again. Just then, he's startled by the door again. Looks up, we're on his three o'clock, simultaneously reaching into his pocket for a coin. Camera shows us a lone man entering, USA hat, Carhartt vest, heads straight for the display cases. Symbolic, perhaps, of the feds, the attorney general, made in America. Next, we're back on T, puts a coin in the machine, makes his selection. Presses K, then three. The number three, the letter K. Three strikes, 
you're out. What's this, a pitch count now? There's silence, musical silence, but ambient noise of the room. Inaudible conversations, one more door chime, and on that, the song starts. He looks over again, third time his eyes have caught the door as it chimed. As the song starts, this third look over, Carmela comes through, wearing a red coat over a black shirt. Apparel aside, AJ and Meadow are also in black. Not funeral attire per se, but again, it's all there. Also, too close to be coincidental, given all the distinct patterns in Tony's shirts. The shirt here is similar to the one he wore in Members Only when Junior shot him. Next, we're on his three o'clock again. He pulls up a couple of menus and throws one her way. Before she's seated, we see a cut to another booth, a couple seated side by side, young love, nice contrast. Might have even have been them once upon a time, back when he was a rap scallion. Then a cut over to the Boy Scout booth. Three boys led by a guy that could also be Phil's kid brother. Carm sits down on the lyric, just a small town girl. The camera cuts back on T, looking down at his menu on the lyric, just a city boy. Then a back and forth on them deciding what looks good. A close-up on him, followed by a wide shot of the booth at 3 o'clock on the two of them. Tony asks where AJ is. Close-up on Carm. He just called. He's on his way. Close-up on Tony. Back on Carm. Med's coming separately. She had to go to the doctor. One family, four cars. Taking AJ's environmental bent and officially turning it on its head. Tony looks up at Carm after the word doctor, concerned. But Carm offers some clarity. She switched birth control. Though, maybe she's already pregnant. Maybe she would have told them that night. T's face upon hearing that is the quintessential dad of a girl face. Camera cuts to another booth as the guitar riffs us to the next verse. It's the guy with the USA hat receiving his three creamers to go along with his one coffee. Only in America. For good measure, we watch as sugar pours out of a container like Niagara Falls. Then back on the three o'clock view of the entire booth, as the drum fill drops, the fill lookalike photobombs the frame from behind, abruptly, and across Tony. Sits down. Carm asks what's up with Mink. T says it's Carlo. He's going to testify. Again, a possible motive for New York to want to proactively move on T. Afraid maybe he'll cut a deal. The camera lingers on Carmela on the lyric. It goes on and on and on and on. She shakes her head ever so slightly. Just then the camera cuts to the door. But Tony's head's still down. In other words, not his point of view. A man in a members-only jacket walks in. Here and after, Mo. Notice a resemblance to Johnny Boy. It's in the shadows. Think on it enough and you start to see a lot of guys. Or a lot of guys behind the guys. Pontecorvo, Furio, swooping in like a knight in white satin armor. Coco 
Rusty Milio, Feech, the feds, planning a raid. Maybe Carlo already gave him up. The Russians, former Chechen rebel associate, David Scatino. Right behind him, we see AJ. Mo couldn't hold the door open? The manners on this guy. Usually you know when somebody's that close behind you. Unless you're preoccupied, distracted, nervous about something. Tony looks up right at the door chime, on cue. This is the fourth time, back on his point of view. He seemingly locks eyes with Mo, but mostly Mo's eyes are focused someplace else, almost going out of his way not to draw attention to himself, which, if your team live, you sometimes wonder. Wouldn't a members-only jacket on an Italian-looking guy trigger Tony somehow? Stand out a little more than normal? Eye contact or no eye contact? Mo comes into focus and fills the frame on the lyric, Strangers Waiting. Chef's kiss to the master David Chase on that one. It's as if this song were written for one purpose. Only Steve Perry didn't know it until now. Back on Tony, as he sees AJ heading over, you know it's Tony's point of view because it's off and to the right, tracking AJ. He grabs a menu and sends it his way. AJ's excited about onion rings. Tony concurs. Best in the state, as far as he's concerned. What a thing to say. And what a place to say it. Catapulting Holston's. And by extension, small business diners like it and showcasing their intricate importance to the places we live. I mentioned Dave Portnoy in his pizza review videos last time. I'd like to think this was the ultimate act of saving small business and inspired things like those pizza review videos to happen. T reaches out, grabs AJ's arm, and sends a surge of love toward his son. It's tough to watch, especially now that I'm a dad. Again, we see it through the three o'clock wide booth view. From three o'clock, we see Mo seated at the booth, turning his head to his three o'clock and looking Tony's way. And then immediately past him and off toward the corner where the Boy Scouts are. It's almost a guilty stare, the way he's tapping his fingers, waiting for a menu to order, to make a move, to make his bones, or simply hold out on taking a piss. It's just like when someone says, you gotta see what's happening behind you right now, but don't look yet, you'll give it away. The way he looks is almost like he wants to make sure T is who he is without drawing attention to the fact that he's looking in that direction, trying to look past him rather than right at him. NFL combine-level peripheral vision over here. Back on AJ, from the vantage point of T, we see Mo blurred in the background, out of focus but discernible, clearly conveying he and T have unobstructed views of each other. Note his eyes are still pointed at T's direction before looking away. 
that detail bothers me the most. Not because it isn't perfect, but because it gnaws at me. I want Tony to notice that motherfucker and scrutinize him. Next, we're outside. An exterior shot of Holston's from across the street. Somebody there? Somebody watching? It's an empty parking spot. A car pulls up. It's Meadow. She attempts a series of moves to parallel park. Note that it takes her three attempts. The space is more than adequate, but her inability to stick the landing creates confusion and tension even to this day. Back inside, another angle of the booth. Locked on AJ and Carm. Drinks arrive. Cokes all around. Then back to the three o'clock view of the mall. Then, back on the two adjacent lovebirds laughing. Alternate versions of Tony and Carm. AJ and Rhiannon. The door opens again. This time, though, Tony doesn't look. And as such, no corresponding look up. It's apparent that the lovebird laughter overpowered the sound of the bell at the door. Tony not looking up further crystallizes the notion that the symmetry of him looking up at the bell naturally precedes what he sees when he looks up. As new people enter, we see Mo stirring his coffee and looking over Tony's way. Again, timing it as a reaction to where the laughter came from. This time he's targeting, like he's looking through a scope. We see mostly the whites of his eyes and not much more. There's a confidence to it this time. You can't help but wonder if had that couple not laughed, would T have heard the bell, looked up, and saw Mo staring right at him? You don't even hear it when it happens. Instead, we see him happily checking out the menu. Why are you looking at it so painstakingly, T? Order your usual and keep your head up. We're more paranoid than he is in these final moments. Carm asks AJ about work. He complains about being Inga's piss boy. She explains he's making contacts. Suggestive word choice. T doubles down. It's an entry-level job. So buck up. Again, suggestive, especially if Mo is on a put-you-on-the-map job, trying to make his bones, become a member. Also, Tony hurls a balled-up straw wrapper at AJ, a projectile, maybe suggesting imminent blood splatter. New Age AJ pipes up. Note the blur of members only there every second of the way. Focus on the good times. AJ's metamorphosis to his dad, or as close as it's going to get, is now complete. A nod back to the season one finale. Someday soon, you're going to have families of your own. And if you're lucky, you'll remember the little moments. Like this. That were good. T thinks he's being sarcastic, 
but AJ's not. Reminds him of the very same moment back in season one, as if their lives were episodes of their own. T's pleasantly surprised, not only that he actually once said that, but that AJ remembered. Looks to Carm for affirmation, but she's still stewing about Mink. Notice the camera's on T. We see a waitress enter the frame behind him on his three o'clock side. Remember the band Tesla? Before Tesla was a car? That song they covered? Signs? Signs, signs, everywhere, signs? Back on Meadow, on the lyric, searching in the night, searching for her parking spot in the night. Every time her tire hits the curb prematurely, the hairs on the back of your neck rise. Every time she pulls out, you think she's going to get hit or somebody's going to do something. Tony B limping up in the dark, something. And actually, now that I sound this out, we do get something. Cut back inside. Mo dismounts his stool and heads Tony's way. Note, he does this on the word living. Next comes the only tracking shot inside the diner. All other shots are static. Suggesting, of course, it's more than just a guy going to take a piss. This guy's getting more screen time than anybody else in the place other than Tony. And we've talked about this ad nauseum across the podcast. A lot of screen time portends bad things. You're able to now see where Meadow would be seated if she was in there on time, next to Tony, effectively shielding his three o'clock. Was this the purpose of the parallel parking? The regularness of life, book-ending death? In the midst of life, we are in death? Cut to Tony's 12 o'clock, looking down, then slowly up. Sensing footsteps coming his way, he's always alert until he's not. Every moment, every step, every jingle, every rattle, this sequence is a glimpse of what life's like compared to ours. How different and stress and anxiety-free our regularness of life diner experiences are compared to his. T notices the guy, but then looks right back down at his menu. Red. He's not threatened by him. And here we get the most interior action in the sequence. Just as the music crescendos to the chorus, as Mo passes Tony's booth, staying as far away from him as he possibly can, the camera orbits from the opposite side of the space to reveal what's at Tony's three o'clock. A men's room. No neon lights around this one, but we've already been warned. Mo heads directly toward it and then inside it. Michael, Salazzo, McCluskey. It's all there. All of this on Steve Perry belting out the word night. Note, now we're looking at Tony's nine o'clock. Next, we see a couple of black guys enter. Could this be it? A couple of unidentified black males, Isabella 2.0. They come in, much more focused, on the display cases. Tony completely overlooks them too, 
His radar was off. Like Rocky in five, he didn't hear no bell. Leading you to wonder, had he noticed them, would he react differently? Would he have gotten up, perhaps, gone to the restroom himself, or recognize something was off and step outside? Something. Imagine a scenario where T gets up and takes a piss right next to Mo. Adhering to the pattern, the shot of the black guys is not from Tony's point of view. Rather, it's off and to the left. It's a much tighter shot. Visual proof, if you will, that Tony never saw nor was ever looking at them. So far, we've seen guys that look like guys he's killed, guys that look like guys that have tried to kill him. You could argue we're witnessing a carousel of people in his life. Not quite life flashing before your eyes, but in the realm. Back on Meadow, outside, looks to finally have gotten a grasp on her parking space. Back on Tony, some onion rings arrive. T says he went ahead and ordered some for the table. The last words we hear on the show, by the way. Carmela enjoys the first one, then AJ, then finally Tony. One don't stop passes. Love, with a capital L, how Tony manipulates his fingers in sync with Perry's intonation of the word feeling. The detail, the respect for the moment. Then outside, we see Meadow out of her car. First, we're behind her. Then we're in front of her. She going to get hit, shot, forget something? What is life at this point? As she runs toward Holston's, a car passes behind her, looking eerily like the SUV Phil was in when he got shot. Our final bit of subterfuge. As she runs to the door, we're on the lyric, people. People are people. Now refer back to Kaisha. Meadow was not in the final scene there at Christmas. She's in California. And in a way here, she's not in the final scene either. She's not with her family. She's headed toward them, but there's an imaginary line that she never crosses to get to them. Not that we see, anyway. Two more frames. Three o'clock on the booth. Waitress enters the frame again, behind him. Everybody's mouths full of onion ring. The communion wafer of a diner. This being their last supper of sorts. Made in America. What's more church, more American, than Cokes and onion rings at a diner? Tony readies himself to check out the jukebox one more time. Ever wonder what song he would have picked? Carmela grabs a napkin out of the dispenser. AJ finalizes his choice on the menu. What could top his mother's menicotte? Importantly, they're both preoccupied. They have no sight on any threats behind him. One final bell toll. The bing of the bell, if you will. Reminding us to be present. Another thing Chase has talked about that informed this moment, that the past is gone and the future hasn't happened yet. 
all we have is right now. And the bell's function is to bring you back into the present. One final Pavlovian look up to the present. One final look, perhaps, at his daughter, his light, his life, his Mary Corleone. Then, only black. Followed by an infinite number of rewinds and goodbyes, which I'll come back to in a sec. The 10 seconds of blackness is the end of one thing and the beginning of something else. Reckoning questions, lingering questions, observations, theories, what the fucks. What have we learned? What now? Who am I? Where am I going? What does this mean? Was he already dead? Is this all a dream? Is Holston's heaven? Is this whole thing one big Rorschach test, Tony once malapropped? What is this trying to get us to think about? Did Silvio and Bacala's words after Jerry's death and on that boat respectively set us up for what this was? And that number three, every day that number three, in the end, was a family of four cut to three? A conventional ending would have given us finality. But after seven years of unconventional narrative, Did we really think it would end on a predictable note? Chase was never a fan of putting a bow on things in particular. So why start now? Wouldn't doing so diminish it? Like in The Irishman, Frank kills Crazy Joe right in front of his family. Great in the moment, but forgettable. Who wants fucking forgettable? But sometimes you think back and wonder. Every other season, was, quote, conclusive. So why wouldn't this one be? And one, resolution over his mother and junior, done and done. And two, Pussy and Richie, done and done. And three, Jackie Jr. and Ralphie, done and almost done. And four, Ralphie and his marriage, done and on ice. And five, New York, done. I guess with respect to six, did Chase not already show us? As we witnessed Jerry's death, more or less through Silvio's experience, and just moments ago through Patty's, when she watched Phil die. Do we really need the last thing we see be Carmela blood-soaked? Obscuring or clarifying things depending on your point of view, the 10-second lapse between his face and the credits was supposed to be longer. But Chase couldn't get a waiver or something. Bureaucracy. The fact that he desired it to be longer makes those seconds as important as any line of dialogue. Think about how much space of a page, 10, 15, 30 seconds of dialogue, take up. If you figure each page is roughly equivalent to about a minute of screen time, it's a considerable amount. Clearly, more questions than answers. I don't think it's for the show to answer any of this, and by extension for me or anyone to try and excavate. The show presented something 
respecting its audience enough to figure it out. And as discussed previously, our interpretations of what it presented are more revelations about ourselves than anything else. Our individual belief systems, our likes and dislikes, our preferences. That's what this ending tells us. It's the sum total of all that, wrapped up in a tight sequence. And the ending is a sudden and stark reminder that this journey has given us all it can in terms of better understanding ourselves. So, after watching the show so many times, it's a certifiable condition. It's self-worthy of the DSM. Sopranoitis, for which, like fuckface-itis, there is no cure. Preparing all these podcasts, thousands of pages of outlines, 39,492 over here references, 12,852 look at this references, the toll it took, the toll it takes, the cost. Chase's own words, all I know is the end is coming for all of us. The only way to end it was the way he ended it. Surprise versus closure. Ambiguity versus obviousness. Steering the ship the best way you know. Sometimes it's smooth. Sometimes you hit the rocks. In the meantime, you find your pleasures where you can. On that note, we got a moment where Tony was happy, truly content with his family. But we know what happens all too often in this show when we get a fleeting moment of happiness. It is swiftly and gut-wrenchingly taken away. And that's what we definitively know happened. We were conditioned for it from the first session with Melfi. The best was over. I do love the idea that the show begins with Tony's point of view, looking up at the statue, and ends with Tony's point of view. Black. Bookends. I also like the observation that, in members only, the screen fades to black, to signify Tony losing consciousness with music fading, as opposed to cutting out. Contrasted with the final moment, where the screen and music cut sharply, signifying immediate unconsciousness. But whether those two truths equate to him dying or not is for another person to say. Or whether he's simultaneously alive and dead like Schrodinger's cat. For me, it's not about that. And I don't really have a point of view on it other than, here we are, still talking about it. It's never been more alive. Whether he's gone or not is secondary. To be just that misses something. Whether or not we got to see the world through his eyes in those final moments, we got to see the world through his eyes over 86 hours. Whether it was admitted or denied in gotcha interviews or not, 
It's not about that. It's about the journey. The journey is what matters. The journey is what keeps us coming back. Janice said in the ride, one second you're sitting there enjoying a ride with your family. The next, your entire world comes crashing down. But you still buy the ticket and take the ride. As I wrap up, back to what I said earlier, for 20 years, it's been rewinds and goodbyes. For T, the regularness of life was a pair of socks. For me, since the show especially, it's been a series of rewinds and goodbyes. But as I sit here putting the finishing touches on this little project of ours, I realize that the life around those rewinds and goodbyes is filled with stuff I can't comprehend I'm lucky enough to be a part of. Stuff that's much more than regular. Stuff that's much more than a pair of socks. More than a rewind and goodbye. This show, through three eras of my life, and then through to the completion of this project, helped me realize all this. Crystallize all this. Most importantly, accept all this. That if we're not in a state of acceptance, enthusiasm, or enjoyment, we are creating suffering for ourselves and for those around us. Over the past three odd years, I've just been a regular guy in a recording studio sometimes with friends, sometimes solo, trying to find a way to adequately appreciate David Chase's work of art. I truly hope it wasn't some fourth-rate attempt at stating the obvious and that it brought some degree of perspective, enhancement, and even entertainment to you and to the legacy of the show itself. Thank you, Sopranos, my favorite old friend. Thank you, David Chase, the commendatory of commendatories. Thank you for letting us inside Tony's head so we could get out of our own for a while. I truly hope we get to have that sit-down I described to you somewhere down the line. Thank you, John, the commendatory of memes, for taking my call and inspiring me to start and complete this journey for being a friend. Thank you to everyone involved, Dr. Justin, Naya, love and miss your smiles and faces. Thank you to every guest that took time out of their lives to hang out with me for a while. I'll never forget that I got to spend time with you all. Thank you to everybody who helped me, cheered for me, went out on a limb for me, to take this as far as it could go. Layla, Peter, Mono, DJ, Nate, Justin, Will, Nicole, Carl, Two Dans, Eugene, Ron, and my wife and chief advocate, Catherine. Thank you to my two kids for laughing at my stupid jokes 
and inspiring me to chase something. And most profoundly, to you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for accepting this project into your lives and for hanging with, growing with, and indulging it. No goodbyes beyond that. Just a cut to black that leaves on one word. A word I'm not sure David Chase consciously intended, but a word that forever lingers on my heart and mind with respect to this show, this project, and you. Possibility. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. Don't stop. See you down the road.